Good evening from I almost said New York. <sighs> <laughs> it's Saturday night. Fuck you all. Good evening from Los Angeles. You're listening to the New Metal Agenda. I am Holiday Kirk here with my co-hosts. Hello, hello. This is Wolf Rambad, your lead favorite Lupine from Parts Unknown. Oh, this is the grandfather himself, aka Cran Nasty, hailing to you from Indiana. ZZ from Space, actually from Los Angeles, just a username. What's up? Today we are talking about the biggest new metal album ever made. This album is so big that I had to tell my own mother very recently that this counts as new metal. This is Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park. This was a world smasher of a seller. It's hard to even comprehend the numbers this put on the board. We're talking 12 platinum in the States. That's 12 million copies, people. 27 million copies worldwide. Best-selling debut album since Appetite for Destruction. Certainly a better album overall. It is the best-selling rock album of the 21st century, and it is very, very likely this is the last of its kind. And really, it's, it represents the commercial pinnacle of new metal itself, not just in terms of actual, uh, in terms of plastic shipped, but its fourth single in the end would peak at number two on the Billboard Hot 100. Kept from that number one spot by Jennifer Lopez and Ja Rule, truly a crime, but I digress. I think that uh, we all have probably very significant connections to this one. Absolutely. Let's start with the let's start with the easy. Fellas, good album. Yeah. I don't think anyone's gonna argue that this is not one of the best in the entire genre. Uh agreed and very succinct on top of that. The original release before the Japanese bonus edition comes in at just under 38 minutes. This band yeah. definitely knew what they were doing when they went to the studio. Oh yeah. Yeah 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 you're right. So just 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 tracks one through 12, 37 minutes, 45 seconds. So and they don't waste it they don't waste a beat. And I think that's a significant observation to make on an album that does have a DJ interlude. Yeah, most albums at this time are probably clocking in 58 minutes, if not over an hour. I know Slipknot's first uh, couple albums were about an hour. I'm sure Chocolate Starfish was it upwards of an hour. Uh, something I wanted to touch on while we're talking about this, the meticulous way they recorded this and just how perfect every detail is. Would you consider this uh, the poppiest new metal album there is? I think that this is the most effective synthesis of heavy music and pop songwriting in music history. I do not think the two have ever connected in a way that felt less forced, more natural than hybrid theory. Uh, Mike Shinoda's pen game was impeccable at this era. This was the only moment in time where an album like this could have struck and connected at this level. It was, it was 2000. Okay. Now, if you think about it, New Metal begins in 1994. I think you put 10 years on that. You say New Metal ends in, in 2004. Is, is Born with Corn Self-Titled, Dead with Volume 3 by Slipknot. That sounds like the canon. So you got 1999 and 2000 are the, as the pinnacle, like the peak, the two peak years of the genre. And this impacting like right at the middle cleaves the genre in half so perfectly. I've been thinking about this recently. Hybrid theory really marks the point where I think it was a downward trend in terms of popular culture, commercial impact of new metal. And this is because you can't better hybrid theory. It, you can't improve upon anything it did. The, the first Korn album had so many different routes to be taken to improve the music that was there. But with hybrid theory, I think that hybrid theory impacted and the sound of it is basically finished. You can deconstruct it, but there's no like evolving this particular template. Because I think when I think of the bands that pulled from Hybrid Theory and also sold very well, 
commercially, I think of bands like Muse and Kings of Leon and Bring Me the Horizon and really not bands that I would say evolved the sound. They just kind of synthesized the pop songwriting element of it in order to make their own hits. It's very clinical when they did it. Whereas with Hybrid Theory, I think it, it, it has a certain warmth to it. It has a resonance. It does. But at the same time, it's like I mentioned, it was a very meticulously recorded album and every detail is poured over. And the, the band's not been shy about mentioning that. But when you mention the warmth and it not being manufactured, you know, you've heard manufactured new metal before. But Linkin Park, they're just, they were the antithesis of that. And I think Hybrid Theory is a perfect example of it. And also, uh, in a turn from the genre at the time, there's no swearing on this album. The no swearing thing, I would be curious to to know, to under to like hear. I wish they had. I wish Warner Brothers had ran a survey or something to see how many people bought this album because it didn't have a parental advisory sticker. Because I know that was the only reason I was I was able to have this album. Well, also, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm not old enough to necessarily remember, but didn't Walmart and Target refuse to stock albums with a parental advisory sticker? Because I know for a fact that's why. Uh... Green Day had to do a censored version of American Idiot was for Walmart. So I know they were at least doing it then. I didn't know if they were already doing it at this point, though. Okay, so here's a fun, here's an interesting one. So I just looked this up. It was actually 21st century breakdown that Green Day said they would not edit for language and content. That was uh, like 09. That's pretty 09, late. Yeah. So, so they took a stand so, way late. <laughs> no, well, they, yeah, I know, right? What? Wait, didn't American Idiot have a sticker on it? But that's, that's interesting. Now that people so, aren't buying albums. Let's take a stand. It's commercially yeah. safe to take a stand now. Let's just do it. It's commercially safe to take a stand. A good point. <laughs> so then that means the sticker, their sticker policy was definitely in place around 2000. So that's actually a very good observation. I bet that helped Lincoln Park out quite a bit. I just know that I was not allowed to have albums that had swearing on them. And I was allowed to have this one because it did not have swearing on it. And uh, I was also an, I was also a super goody two shoes. Like I wouldn't even listen to albums that are songs that had swearing on it. That's how lame i was so this was like a godsend to me this was my first new metal this and uh satellite by pod would have been like my first two new metal albums this was also my first actually this was my first new metal record i was trying to retrace my steps looking through my old ipods and stuff to figure out what my first one would have been and i'm pretty sure it's this if not hybrid theory then it's see you on the other side by corn but it's one of those two for sure and it's really weird to go backwards through new metal if you got into hybrid theory first, because the new metal that preceded this does not sound much like hybrid theory. It's it's so much because I think until this point, the idea was is that what sold was the stuff that was really fucking heavy, raw, you know, Ross Robinson style productions. And then with with the this is sort of like the advent of the Don Gilmore era where everything is very crisp, very clean, very meticulously Vibrant. written and recorded. Yeah. When I was speaking to the album's warmth earlier, that actually is a weird, it, it is a weird and uh, not quite true observation to make. It is in a lot of ways, a very cold and clinical album. It's very digital. You know, this is the least jammy rock album you'll ever hear. They, they don't, they do not sound like they were working through ideas in the, in the practice space day in and day out. This was something that feels like it was pieced together in the studio and on Pro Tools. Oh, just really quick, I want to say, except for the DJ interlude, that really just feels like Mr. Han just having a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that does feel that does feel well. What I was going to say is that the warmth of the album comes through with, I think, the really passionate and very gripping singing of Chester Bennington. And yeah, I think really he's like the emotional center of that, because I think that even um, Mike Shinoda is a lot more composed and sort of a, like the two of them, Shinoda and Bennington have something of a, a 
of an internal external dialogue going on between them where where Shinoda expresses in his lyrics and his rapping expresses a lot of inner feelings and is a sort of a like a conscience whereas Chester is more of the active expression more of the active the active emotion the anger the rage the he's articulating outward. what Mike's feeling not no I don't, I think I don't think articulating would be the way to put it well, I think that I think that Mike is kind of like Mike is like the internal monologue and then Chester's would actually get said so there's all that you know the anger the confusion the fear that's sort of running through our uh, like our narrator's head of any of these songs, as you want to say. And then Chester's what actually comes out of the person's mouth. So, you know, like a song like Paper Cut, where it would have these verses with all these words and so much pontificating on the nature of uh, anxiety. And then Chester just gets out with the three or four lines of the chorus and the two lines in the bridge. And, and that's the difference between your internal monologue and your external dialogue is you only get to say a percentage of what's actually on your mind. Well, what I think is really significant though about the rapping on hybrid theory is that I don't think that Mike Shinoda is necessarily like a great MC, but he does pull liberally from sort of like Scribble Jam, Rap Olympics, The Roots, Jay-Z, Nas, that sort of style of rapping and rap songwriting whereas to this point i think any rapping that was happening on uh new metal albums was like mike Patton on epic you know i don't think anybody had like a real serious engagement with the art of rapping like mike did mike was a very serious rapper very backpack rapper i don't necessarily agree with that i think a lot of people early in the game were influenced by nwa more specifically ice cube and uh I think that aggressive style of rapping that Ice Cube and Cypress Hill were really doing, that West Coast stuff, is really what pushed people like Fred Durst to write the way they did, more so on $3 Bill than the later records. So I don't think Mike's necessarily the first one to respect rap music and not just do it in kind of like a cheesy late 80s way, but definitely did it better than Fred did. Okay, you're right about that, because Fred was influenced by like Cypress Hill and like you said, like Ice Cube and, and acts like that. So there were, there were more serious... Like MCs on the or scene. Head PE. MCUD took that shit pretty seriously. MCUD he was a West Coast too. rapper himself. But I do think Mike was the first one to take that style of rapping, that sort of East Coast uh, hip hop style of rapping and twist it around to be deployed as pop music and as as instruments in pop songwriting. Like the best example that I could give you would be from the pre-chorus to in the end when he goes, what it meant to me will eventually be a memory of a time when, which is a lot of internal rhymes piled on top of each other to serve the idea, uh, to, to make a catchy hook. Like th that's the idea. And, and I think that that sort of, and, and then he repeats that end, end rhyme twice before each chorus. And it's something that got co-opted into new metal in a way that I think re resonates maybe further than I wish it did. Because then like Slipknot would do Psychosocial, right? Eight years later. What happens before every chorus? What does Corey say before the every chorus of that song? I'm done. It has begun. I'm not the only one. Before every chorus, it's the exact same template of pop songwriting, except it's, you know, clumsier. I'm Corey Taylor, and I'm here to say I'm bad at rapping in a major way. I'm very psychosocial, and you can say. So <laughs> it's not, yeah, but that's exactly. what I'm talking that's what I'm that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying that a lot of bands like Corn and Slipknot reoriented themselves around this style of pop new metal songwriting in the wake of hybrid theory like to me thoughtless has always sounded kind of like corn 
trying to do a Linkin Park style song. And Korn, I think, suffered immensely from it because Korn also lost their innovative, like freestyle groove drumming. Someone else pointed that out to me that the worst thing to happen on Untouchables was that David Silvera does not drum anymore. He's not drumming anymore. You know, he's like he's he's on a click. There's no real groove. There's no rhythm. There's no innovation. He's just bit, bit, but it's four for every song. Really straightforward stuff. And if you even think in your head, because Thoughtless is a super catchy song. So anyone here can think to themselves how that song goes. Like there's not there's not that there's there's nothing really significant going on in the backbeat. Rob knew that his drumming on this on this first record was it was pretty pretty rudimentary. But at the same time, you couldn't have a fucking um you couldn't you couldn't make this album with a uh, David Silvera. Like the drumming had to be really grid-based and really rudimentary. Like the so the drum beat on crawling where uh, and during the chorus where it goes da 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 like there's that there's that snare hit there's the there's like an asynchronous snare hit that happens during the choruses it's a great hook it lodges in your brain it's if you listen to it after the show you'll notice it i swear to god but the drumming needed to be the way it is it all had to be in service to the songs not to the players like you know it, imagine any fucking song on this album with a guitar solo on it like it wouldn't work it had to be about the songwriting and i've always whenever i talk about this album now i always talk about it like it's mike shinoda's baby like he did everything and i i might be wrong about that if any of you guys know more about the songwriting please let me know but from what i what i can tell uh mike shinoda pieced together mo- a lot of this like on his own like in pro tools and with zero and whatnot if I remember correctly, before Linkin Park was called Linkin Park and before Chester was even in the band, he had demoed a lot of these tracks already. So I think that he was writing most of them. Like a lot of those That's zero demos and hybrid theory, theory demos. Uh, I think Chester's on the hybrid theory demos, but still, I think Mike was doing this before they even met Chester. Oh, no, I, I uh, agree with it for the most part. I don't think the drumming is as bad as you're describing it, but it is very rudimentary. You are correct. I don't think the drumming is bad. I think it's boring. It's paint by numbers. Well, okay, hold on. I I would like to say I'm I was being severe when I said it was bad. It's not bad, um, and I don't know if it, I don't think it's boring either. I think that it serves the songs. I think that is the much more correct, the better way of putting it. The drumming serves the song. It's, it often does sound like samples, you know. It's extremely quantized. So, but that's good. That's good. You couldn't you could not swap those drums out with anything. You could say the same thing about the guitar and the bass parts too. Really, the only thing that shines head and shoulders above anything else as far as performance goes is Chester's voice. Yeah, the production too. I think Hans deserves some credit here. Or some of the uh, background shit, like all of like the scratching is really good. I think the scratching is iconic on this record. The bass, drums, and guitar on this one are very much just the template. And it's the stuff that goes on around them that is is quality and i would say that chester is definitely is not the only focal point i would agree that the production is so stellar on this album this has always been an album i've marveled at as being one of the best produced rock albums of all time like there's so many layers of shit going on in every song for for anyone listening in i would i'm going to recommend go on youtube look up the top of the pops performance of in the end listen to that they mixed it weird and they have a, a bed of synths pushed way high up in the mix. And you hear that bed of synths, or it's I guess it's more just like electronics, really. And you know that that's sitting in the song, but you never like hear it. It doesn't, it doesn't jump out at you. It's because there's so many 
different elements just clanking and clinking away in the background of all of these songs, but they're mixed and they're mastered so well that it's like I said, everything serves the song. Yeah, it's this is very much just a complete package album. And I think that's a big part of why it sold the way it did was because I think that the word in on the playground was was that every song on it was good. I think that that matters. I think that goes a long ways. For one, I know that songs like uh, Runaway did get played on the radio despite not being a single. In fact, in fucking facts, y'all, Runaway charted at number 40 on the U.S. Alternative Airplay chart, 37 on Mainstream Rock. Not a single, not even a single. They were just playing that shit because it was so good and people needed to hear it, okay? That's what sold, I think that's what moved units, you know? A Place for My Head, not a single. For God, not a single. By Myself, not a single. That's what I think made this into, into such a massive phenomenon is that I think word kind of got to you, whether it was from the passenger seat of your best friend's car or your buddy's disc man at lunchtime that this was just front to back bangers and you had to get a copy. Anyway, I want to bring this up because uh, you guys do not know this. I don't know if anyone fucking knows this. I am one of probably like 332 people that own a copy of One Step Closer, which is the book written by Jeff Blue, who was the A&R that signed these guys to Warner Brothers. And it's a very compelling book. It's not a good one. He's not exactly a writer. The chapters are often three pages long, but there is some some details in there that are extremely compelling and really shape a lot of how you might view this album in retrospect. One of the more interesting ones is this. Okay, now you might have known this one. This isn't like a big secret. Do we all know how Chester got to be in the band? I heard the story a while ago, but please jog my memory and uh, introduce it to the audience. They needed a new lead singer. Jeff Blue knew Jeff Blue, the A&R at Warner Brothers, knew of Chester. Chester was living in Texas. He calls Chester, says, come out to L.A. and audition for this band. So that's another that's another thing that I think makes Hybrid Theory and makes Linkin Park the way they are, was that they got accused a lot of being a boy band when they came out of being very manufactured. And while that's not totally true, it's also not totally not true. They were they were somewhat assembled and they were very primed for success in that regard. But yeah, so Jeff Blue flew Bennington in to join the band where they just played basically all showcases. I don't know if Linkin Park played one show before they got signed. I don't know if they ever did a show. Like, I don't think this was like a fucking get in the van style band. This was like, this is this is the ultimate in like Hollywood, Los Angeles, Viper Room uh, showcase band that I can ever think of. So here's something though, but here's something insane I think is in this book and has never been brought up by anyone anywhere else. Warner Brothers tried to replace Mike Shinoda with a different rapper. They thought that that was not working and they sent Jeff Blue down to their rehearsal space to tell Mike that he was out of the band. And and Jeff Blue goes to the rehearsal space and says, we're replacing you with the rapper Mad Lion, who is a Jamaican dance hall rapper. Too many suckers and not enough time to poke up all of them with one clip for me nine. Too soon to kill them, say me don't care. I tried to chill, but did not get me no way. I just put on me gun in a baby suitcase. Pick up me fist, me both of them. Do you know who Mad Lion is? Can you fucking believe that? Seriously. What the fuck? Why? Can you even begin to imagine how that How does that happen? work? Well, what they said was they're like, Mike, you'll still be in the band. 
You'll be writing the songs. You'll be doing like piano, but we'll have this new rapper. We'll have Mad Lion come in and do the rap parts. And Mike, and and then from that point on, uh, Jeff Blue, who again got the band signed, was dead to Mike for, for that was it. They I don't think they ever spoke again. Shot the messenger. Oh, they shot the shit out of the messenger. And a lot of the book feels it's a lot of the book is actually very sad because it feels like uh, Jeff Blue trying to claim a piece of Linkin Park's legacy after the fact. Because after that happened, Mike said. We're done with you. We want nothing to do with you. I think they, I, th- I'm, I feel like they fired him. Him and uh, Jeff Blue and uh, Chester Bennington stayed on good terms for the rest of Chester's life. But the rest of the band, I don't know if they ever really talked to Jeff Blue ever again. But yeah, that's fucking nuts. They, Warner Brothers tried to replace Mike Shinoda with Mad Lion. And get it, when you get off the string, go look up Mad Lion and listen to that. Tell me how you think that would have worked. That's a crazy thought. I might have the page marked. I might go check, go grab it. But I can't imagine. I, I might go. I'm going to grab the book, actually. One second, guys. Sorry about this. Oh, here we go. OK, so he's going up to talk to David Kane, but clearly an executive of some sort at Warner Brothers, talking about how he likes the music. Kid Chester has an amazing voice. The rapper doesn't. There's a reason you didn't get any offers on the band before. Does the rapper do any writing other than his rapping? He does a ton. He basically produces and writes 50, 60% of everything, maybe more. I honestly didn't even realize how much till recently. Can you talk to him, get him to take a step back? What do you mean? He's not a great rapper. He sounds so pedestrian. Anything he does minimizes the impact of Chester's vocals, which is the strength of the band. And then Jeff Blue says, I don't know what to say. Uh, I figured just as much. This is coming from the exec again. But luckily, I have a solution. I just spoke to Mad Lion. You know who that is, right? Of course I lied. Try not to seem stupid. Cool band. You don't have to lie to me, Jeff. I'm imagining like a cigar in his mouth. You don't have to lie to me, Jeff. Mad Lion is a rapper, not a band. He's worked with me on Sublime, KRS-One, Biggie. He's amazing. I spoke to him and he's into rapping on some of the tracks and possibly even replacing Mike. And then he goes on to say, Jeff, go tell Linkin Park that we're replacing Mike Shinoda with Mad Lion or you're dropped. So he fucking does. What a chump. David says, so he's, now he's talking to the band, right? David says he loves Chester, thinks we've got some good songs, but, but what? But he wants to replace Mike. Get rid of Mike? He was trying to absorb what I just said and was silent for a few seconds. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? You know, there's absolutely no way that's happening. I'm just telling you what he said. He suggested some guy named Mad Lion, and he wants to make Mike more of a writer. So that's to Chester. Chester says, you need to tell the band this. Okay. Jeff's about to pass the fuck out. Did they actually want to keep Mike or was Jeff just saying that the Chester, the soft and the blow did who want to keep Mike, the uh, executives? No, the executives wanted Mike out of the rapper spot. That was the whole idea was that whichever this is, whatever exec this was at Warner Brothers issuing this directive. They were like, this band's great, but Mike is not a great rapper and we need to replace him. But did he really want him to just be a songwriter or just kick him out entirely? Probably kick him out or just bump him to songwriter status. Yeah. So how could you do this? I built this band. You want to kick me out? This is coming from Mike. There's no way. Couldn't you have my back? No. And then then Jeff goes, first of all, I have no idea who Mad Lion is. I swear it was David's suggestion. He said he worked with him on some albums. Of course I have your back. But you said you want Mike out, Brad stated. No, this is all getting twisted. I held up my hand, counting on my fingers. Number one, I signed the band to a publishing deal with Mike as the main writer and producer. Number two, I shopped the band for two and a half years, always supporting Mike, even when people talk shit. And number three, I made it a requirement that anywhere I landed for a job would require me signing the band with Mike clearly as a front man. 
So how does that even make even the slightest bit of sense that I'd want Mike out? I put my job on the line for you guys, and I don't want to see you shelved or dropped. Dropped, someone in the band said, as they looked at each other with fear and anger. Suddenly, I realized I should have let McDermott or Danny Hayes deal with this issue. Trust me, this is not how I envisioned things going at all. Things were different with Joe McEwen. But we have a new head of A&R. So there you go. It was the head of A&R issuing this little, this little nugget. It was an award-winning producer and giving us direction. You guys are like family. So, man, this isn't a family. You went from our publisher to our A&R guy. You work for the label now, not for us. That hurts. I've been helping develop this band since your first show. I'm in this because I believe in you individually and as a band. Your songs have the power to say what most people can't express, and I want the world to hear your message. Uh, yes, I work for the label and all those seem, things seem fucked. The label has the power to get your songs heard by the, by the world. Oh, okay. This part really blows the, blows the bridge up. We can get another label. There are plenty of recording companies that would want us. Did you guys just somehow forget the last 44 rejections? I sure haven't. I hit up every single A&R person from every record label, which means we were passed on by at least six people per label. Blah, blah, fucking blah. And then this is the bombshell. You guys are aware that Warner owns whatever you've done here and in the past. Plus, there's always a re-recording restriction that would prohibit you from recording any of these songs for any other label for probably like five to ten years, period, if you leave or even if they drop you, we'd have to start all over again. What if we leave or get dropped? We can't take our own songs. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of the trouble here with Jeff Blue, who I honestly do pity because if you read the book and you take him at his word for the most part, he really shaped this band. If if he's not if he's not fucking around, if he's single handedly responsible for getting Chester in this band, then Lincoln Park is as much kind of as much his band as anyone else in that band. It seems that he also signed them to a Warner Brothers deal that gave all of their songs to Warner Brothers and then kind of toadied his ass down to their rehearsal space to say, We're, let's fire Mike. And then and then the book basically it goes on to say that they uh, they kick him out of this practice space. And I think the band just ices him after that one. Chester does not. But I don't know if anyone else in that band actually go. I know the audience can't see this, but let me see the cover of that book. Just hold up the cover to the camera. So did he intentionally only underline the part of the word closer that says loser, like implying he's the loser in the Lincoln Park story because he burnt the bridge oh. he built? Definitely not. There's no way. This is not nearly a clever. There's not nearly a clever enough of a book to to have, have done that. But that is a great observation anyway. What were you going to say, though, Cran? Oh, I was just curious. Does the book elaborate how he knew Chester Bennington and knew he was a good vocalist to try to get him into the band? Yeah, it's in there. I don't remember it offhand. I'm sure he just maybe had some demo tapes from Grey Days or something. Yeah, really fucked. And it just underscores, I think, the close chemistry of the of the band that it's unimaginable that they would be able that they would do that. There was there's no there was no replacing Mike. You could replace the bassist. I know because they did. So that's but that's sort of the idea of I guess that passage of the book that I, I want to underscore is like how much of a label based creation Lincoln Park was in some ways. And that's sort of the uh, this is sort of the, the, the issue, I think, as as new metal and uh, hip hop uh, became less mainstream concerns. I think it left Mike in a bad place songwriting wise because he had to give up the core elements that made his style so effective. Yeah, that's why I think Hybrid Theory is such an incredible document of one era, the only one era when this could have happened. It had to have happened right in 2000 or it never would have happened. And yeah, all right, enough out of me, though. I'm going to really go on. So if anyone else has thoughts, please. Uh, maybe not the most uh, eloquent thought, but God, this record sounds expensive. 
it sounds like they spent $5 million making this fucking thing. <laughs> oh, I disagree. I, I disagree, actually. I don't think it does sound expensive. I think a record like Untouchables sounds expensive with all of its like instrumentations and heavy, how heavy it is and dense with all its layers. But Mike Shinoda w- w- once said that his biggest influence in terms of production on this record was The Shape of Punk to Come by Refused, which I doubt that was a particularly expensive album to make. Mike said that he A-B'd all of the songs on Hybrid Theory with songs off of The Shape of Punk to Come. So I don't know if it was necessary. What this doesn't sound to me necessarily is it doesn't sound expensive. It just sounds like real craftsmanship. It sounds like every member of the band was really invested in putting out the, the most amazing sounding album ever. It also sounds very sober. It doesn't sound like these guys did any drugs. <laughs> if you know how much recording costs at the time, though, especially in the studio that Warner Brothers was renting, NRG. So yeah, I mean, in our NRG studios was like the recording studio for major labels to put their big signees in. And yeah, you were running up at least what, like 250 grand to get an album done in there. So it was expensive. Don't get me wrong. It was expensive, but it never, it never really sounded like money to me as I guess. Well, I'm, is what I I'm mean, saying. it's early 21st century. I imagine all this computer shit was probably really expensive at the time. Cause this is a very uh, digital age sounding album. It sounds like a lot of electronics, a lot of, uh, a lot of computerized stuff going going on compared to other bands. That's I'm sure that equipment was not cheap at the time. Uh, Wolf, if you could chime in here, could do you recall how much a Pro Tools rig would cost at the time? Because I remember Devin Townsend famously going to get a loan for this and getting rejected the first time. Many tens of thousands of dollars at the very yeah. least. There you go. And you can do that stuff on a MacBook these days. So definitely expensive compared to now. What's a Pro Tools rig? A computer that can do music editing. <laughs> Yeah, all the equipment and software that would make an album like this possible to sound this polished. Speaking of which, so the, the real tragedy, though, of the Jeff Blue saga was that right after he got kicked out of Linkin Park, who'd he go on to sign? Dry Cell. He signed Dry Cell. That was his band. He's found Dry Cell and paraded them around Warner Brothers saying these guys are going to be even bigger than Linkin Park was. And he fucked their career up so bad that they didn't even get a first album out. <laughs> have you heard Dry Cell? He was absolutely Cran. right. Dry Cran. Cell went on to sell 32 million copies. Cran, have you heard Dry Cell? I have not, no. Oh my God. They're, they're definitely like a new metal nerd type band. Not because they're good. They have their fans, but their singer is the most unrepentant ripoff of Chester Bennington you'll ever hear in your life. And this is so true, in fact, that he now currently sings for Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, I know. So he basically replaced Chester Bennington at that job. So a lot of people in like this new wave of new metal hat are totally just aping his style, though. Like, I don't know if you've ever listened to Fever 333, but it definitely sounds like he's trying to do Chester Bennington on the clean parts. I saw them open for corn. Okay, let's go. First-hand experience, baby. Take us back there. What do you got? Uh, the Fever 333 thing? They were pretty good. Oh, I thought you were talking about Lincoln Park. No, Lincoln Park I saw one time in 2001, Ozfest. And that's why I was asking Wolf if he could find that circular, because there was a big passage about how uh, their lyrics are about partying just as hard as they live, and Mike Shinoda ripped it apart on stage. He was like, we are talking about some real shit up here. And it's embarrassing that somebody put that in print about our lyrics. And it was right before they kicked into crawling, actually. This is the, absolutely the least. This, you know what? That's a great point that you just brought up. This whole oh man was this. This was like 
the first big new metal band to to have no party in them at all like no party Korn, no misogyny no uh, we mentioned the no swearing yeah like corn deftones i guess that's oh you know what no slipknot didn't party oh yeah they did <laughs> did they you should listen to oh, some God, uh, yeah. interviews of Corey taylor talking about the iowa days okay they partied but their music doesn't sound like partying like oh deftones, no it's not party corn, music but, limp uh... biscuit made like party music you are right though because i do think no well the thing about the thing about Slipknot, though, is I know that while they were making that album, while they were making their first album, they did not party. Like, well, I'm not talking about the production. I'm talking about the touring. When they were touring, they were partying fucking hard. Like, Corey talks about, like, waking up in pools of his own vomit, like, in his hair because he was drinking so much. And, like, everyone else was, like, so fucked up on so many drugs. Oh, but you're talking Iowa. That's different, right? You're talking Iowa days? Because Iowa yeah, but days that would be the different. same time as Hybrid Theory. No, I know. But, but with Slipknot's debut, I'm pretty sure they were militantly sober maybe for that tour but i know they were super sober when they were recording that album i know with iowa they went off the fucking deep end but i digress i think that let's uh let's get back on track a little bit i want to mention that before lincoln park went on another band with two singers played crazy town oh boy and they got booed off stage so fucking bad like when they were introducing their songs things went so quiet that you could hear three girls in the front go yeah crazy town (laughs) Those and poor then girls. people started whipping mud at them. Yeah, they got about three songs into their set before people started pelting them with mud and whatever they had in their pockets at the time. I think a lot of change was getting thrown on stage. So uh, Shifty Shellshock announces that they're going to play a song for their real fans and they rip into the worst rendition of Butterfly I've ever heard. And I already hate that song. And they just stormed off stage. And then Linkin Park came on next and, and they leveled the place. It was amazing. Did, did, they, did Crazy Town try to do like a rock version of Butterfly or was it just like run the backing track let's get this over with it was exactly what you think it was it was almost like the music video was playing but you could hear it over the pa yeah crazy town should not have been on ozfest they were a bad ozfest band they should have done warp tour not that year lincoln park slipknot mudvayne was at that show Hatebreed. no but i'm saying that crazy town didn't have the chops to be like on a heavy metal festival even with other new metal bands i don't think that they they fit I think that maybe Sugar Ray, if you want to count them as new metal, I think that's a good pairing for Crazy Town. Other than that, no, they don't. They shouldn't be touring with heavy bands. The crowd um, is not going to like them. But I digress. What I think is an interesting point that was made there, though, is that Linkin Park were new metal. But when you consider like the big three bands that had been till that point, which would have been Deftones or the big four bands of new metal to that point, Deftones, Limp Bizkit, Korn, Slipknot. Lincoln Park were had no misogyny in their lyrics. They did not party. They were like the nicest guys, you know. They cleaned up their green room at the end of their shows. And I think that 2000 being one year past the middle of the new metal wave, you were hitting upon those first real flames of exhaustion of the new metal scene. So for Lincoln Park to come along as they did with their sound and strike the exact opposite pose of every new metal band that had been breaking through to that point was perfect. Perfect timing. They were, it was exactly what was needed. They didn't swear either. Let's not forget that. They didn't swear. I'll tell you, if there was one thing about new metal bands, people were very certain of at that point was that they sure did fucking swear. So you had like the nicest, cleanest dudes not partying and up being respectful towards women and writing very compact pop songs and it's like no wonder it blew speaking of the not swearing thing i think it's really interesting that when lincoln park started swearing slipknot stopped swearing because volume three Ooh. no swear words uh what's the third oh. album from lincoln park minutes to, minutes to midnight 
that album uh, is the one where Mike Shinoda famously goes, filthy mouth, no excuse. Uh, God, I can't remember the, the lyric, but he says going out of my fucking mind is yeah. like what the big moment of like, holy shit, he said the F word. They swear. They well, swear what now. I remember, well, what I remember in, in, in the moment was being very, very disappointed in my beloved Lincoln Park for putting out Collision Course, which had a parental advisory sticker on it. I was like, they have sold us out. They have betrayed us. How could they do that? So but that record's so much fun. Anyway, I love hearing Mike Shinoda say you kiss my whole asshole. That just it cracks me up every time. That's definitely the sideshow episode of Meteora. So we'll do Meteora and we'll do Collision Course. I, I was thinking about this, too. I had been right. I, re- I wrote about this recently, but like hybrid theory didn't necessarily inspire any. I think I think what probably happened at the moment was a lot of the big record labels saw the success of hybrid theory and thought to themselves like fuck to the yeah baby we're you know we're catching our second wins time to sign some lincoln parks and the only one of those uh signees that panned out was evanescence i don't think any like any new metal band that came in the wake of lincoln park i can't think of any of them that really Papa really Roach? no that's before though that was before actually that was but they before. mellowed out after lincoln park yeah they're before everyone, slash during dude Papa Roach played that on my show too that's a funny observation you made those easy. So it's like Corn popified their songs quite a bit after Lincoln Park and yeah. Slipknot stopped well, swearing because I never even thought I never I've never even considered that there aren't swears on volume three. There's really no swear words. Nope. No parental advisory sticker on that album. It's the only Slipknot album without a single swear on it. What? Why didn't I have that? Did he ever say why? Why? Um, I think he says because he was sick of Rolling Stone. If I think it was specifically Rolling Stone. Uh, saying that he was a bad songwriter and had to lean on swears is like a shock value, like crutch. I think he did it to like say "fuck you" to the uh, critics. Pretty without sure without using that word. Yeah, he he was F- saying you. "fuck you" without saying "fuck you." So yeah, that's hybrid theory. The only other really cool bits of info I have on hybrid theory is my favorite song off the album and my pick for greatest Linkin Park song ever, which is "With You," is a co-production has pr- has production on it by the Dust Brothers. Who produced Paul's Boutique for Beastie Boys, which is a fucking incredible fun fact. They did in kick fact, the PA with corn. In fact, in fact, with you was supposed to be on the Dust Brothers debut uh, studio album. So the Dust Brothers were going to put out an album, and that song was for that album. And then Warner Brothers or some of Warner Brothers heard it and were like, Ah, no, 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 we will take this. We want this for Hybrid Theory. So there's some canny. There's a little canny. Uh, it's a one-two for you. Going back to about how this album changed new metal, I kind of have a hot take. I think this album helped define and is one of the examples of perfecting the genre, but it also fucking killed the genre because everyone wanted to be a radio band after this instead of a offensive or not necessarily offensive, but transgressive or ag- aggressive heavy metal act. They instead wanted to be on K-Rock out here in LA at least or on whatever the regional equivalent of K-Rock would be. They wanted to be headlining festivals rather than starting mosh pits. And Lincoln Park well, that's Q on a one here in Chicago. Q on a one, 94.7. The worst thing that hybrid theory did to me, to the new metal scene was is that it 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 just zapped record labels' patience to develop bands. Bands weren't getting developed after this. It was like we need to hit now. So switched, uh, get signed, dropped. Fucking Unloco, signed, dropped. 40 Below Summer, signed, dropped. We could go on. Those are just three that I wrote about recently. I mean, who else could we even name, you know, like that got signed and shit canned after their first album went belly up? In that article, I made the point that like Incubus didn't take off right away. You know, it took them until their 
second or maybe even third album to really blow. And they would never have gotten that chance in a post Lincoln Park world. But yeah, I think that that totally killed uh, any label's interest in patiently developing a band. Trust Company had it bad too. Trust Company were cited a lot as a a very post Lincoln Park uh, new metal band, which they were because they were extremely pop oriented in that regard. But their second album flopped, and they were out. You know, was frost. Fear the Clown signed to a major label? <laughs> I don't think so because they had funny. a lot of songs on TV. Like they had songs on Smallville. So like, I'm curious if they were like one of the post Lincoln Park, we need a land grab bands. Like we need to get another alternative band for the radio. Here's a funny one. So the, I think it's the bassist or maybe drummer of chat pile. I was DMing him on Instagram a few weeks ago. And if you're listening to this and you don't play either of those instruments, I apologize. But he was talking about how in his, he's from the same hometown as fear the clown was and fear the clown used to act like they were the fucking shit. Cause they're like, yeah, we're going to get signed. We're going to blow up. They had a, a a pickup truck that they had wrapped in the Fear the Clown logo. And like <laughs> That's pretty sick. That they drove around in because they're like, yeah, we're going to be huge. Didn't pan out that we way. Ha- we had that band here in Northwest Indiana. They were called Sick Frown. This is back in the MySpace days. And they had pictures of themselves hanging out with Head PE. And they had Thanksgiving dinner with corn. I think one of them won a contest or something. Oh, but I mean, they had I the had band had with the local wrapped around. Oh, if I had had a Thanksgiving dinner with corn too, you wouldn't be able to tell me shit. I'd be like, yeah, we're fucking, we're, we're about to be on. What year was this though? What do you, what year are you referring to? Ooh, 2000, 2001, 2002. Now they were a straight head PE ripoff. So there was no way they were going anywhere. I don't know, buddy. I feel like being a, I feel like being a head PE ripoff in 2001 could still take you places, you know, but, but have you ever heard of sick frown? I was just about to say it didn't, but I'm saying it could, <laughs> you know, twisted method. Yes, bro. Twisted method got signed for $2 million. Oh, really? their deal is worth two million it doesn't mean they were handed two million but i'm sure that there were certain provisions in the in the contract where if they met conditions how much did they generate though maybe 250 nothing, nothing. like two dollars fifty cents i mean yeah <laughs> that's but that's 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 like what i'm saying was that you could still play your cards right as a new metal band and get signed to some insane deals and uh but yeah lincoln park fucked everything up because there yeah. nobody was getting developed after that and i'd really love to talk to one of those bands that came out in like a post Lincoln Park world. So one other thing I want I I personally have only one other thing that I want to say about hybrid theory before I feel like we should move on. Now I guess I have a couple more things to say. I could really go fucking on about this album. This was the this was the first time I had a favorite album in my life that my parents had nothing to do with. They did not like Lincoln Park. They did not have any interest in Lincoln Park. And this album was my favorite album ever. I worshipped this band. I ate, slept, drink, breathed at Lincoln Park posters i was in the fan club when i broke my arm roller skating they had to cut me out of my lincoln park hoodie i was devastated i was on the operating table i was like there's got to be a better way it wasn't <laughs> cut my ass out of that one so this was the band for me i had everything i had this i had reanimation i had live in texas i had meteora i had a couple of the underground cds this was absolutely the fucking band for me growing up and i do think a lot of that is because of how when you're young enough and you don't Uh, have any of those irony triggers in your brain firing and telling you you need to listen to cool music and be cool and be distant from your emotions and from the way you're feeling and you can't listen to this shit it's boy band overproduced garbage what are you doing you can connect with stuff like this on on an incredibly immediate level i think for uh, me for context for the listeners i got into this album when i was like 12 and that would have been like 2010 2011 new metal was fucking dead at that time lincoln park was distancing themselves from the genre really hard nobody wanted to be associated with it 
yet this album still stood the test of time a decade on in the like i don't know what to call it the valley of the genre's popularity people were still recommending it that's how i got into it i got into it because people's older brothers at school were talking about it like it was a good band even though they were talking shit about corn and lip biscuit in the same breath like this album really overcame a lot of that hate people had cranster didn't you you got into this though contemporarily didn't you you mean as far as at the time yeah absolutely uh you could not escape lincoln park on the radio at the time and every other if it wasn't crawling playing it was in the end and if it wasn't in the end playing it was one step closer honestly it didn't really click for me until i saw them in 2001 and just how tight and energetic and how into their own music they were it's like i said it, it was ubiquitous it, everything like lincoln park at the time was just as big as in the club was by 50 cent and you guys weren't around for that either, but I, they shut schools down to celebrate in the club being released. It was nuts how just that song was everywhere. I was and around Lincoln Park for was the metal the equivalent of that. I was around for in the club and I was going to a private Christian school and I still happen to know the first verse of in the club. That's how fucking big in the club was. I was <laughs> not allowed. Go. I was not allowed to listen to in the club, but I still knew the lyrics to in the club because that's how big in the club was. So, no, I am aware. I am aware, but what song is in the club? Which one's that? This fucking baby. Bottle full of bub. Mama, I got don't, lots of E if you're into taking drugs. Don't do it. No idea. It's played by 50 Cent. You can't think of a rhyme that goes with drugs. Come on, man. All right. Anyway, <laughs> these children, these itty bitty. Babies. Anyway, yes. It, yeah. Seeing them live and just how incredible they were. They blew the roof off of Ozfest. And especially after the blunder, that was crazy town. That's that's cool that they got they got to connect really well, though, with Ozfest, considering of how they were undergoing a lot of the same boy band allegations. I guess that is really the advantage of being placed after crazy town. Like you can't do worse. Only only <laughs> up to go from here. That is the best contrast ever. And going on before Slipknot. And going on before Slipknot, yeah. Going from going from Crazy Town to Linkin Park to Slipknot, one of one, two, three. Honestly. Do we have any last thought? Wolf's been awfully quiet on this one. Does Wolf have anyone any thoughts on this one? Not a Linkin Park guy. Do I toss a grenade right now? Yes. I, I yes. don't like this album. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's go. No, let, let's go. Talk to us. Talk to them. So I think the problem is... This didn't click for me until I listened to an interview with Sky Holden, Cheem Singer. And Sky said that Hybrid Theory was their musical Big Bang because it helped them realize that you could connect hip hop, electronica, and rock music. And that makes sense to me because I already poured the concrete on those foundations. So when this came out, I was just like, this does nothing for me. Wait, you are, what do you mean? Wait, what do you mean that you had already poured the concrete on those foundations? So like connecting like rock, hip hop and all that stuff together. It was like EMF to me, Technotronic stuff. out like Manchester. Like I've already like I already made that connection in my head that like you could connect those things together. So when this came out, like it wasn't fresh to me. It was kind of like another iteration of a thing that I was already cognizant of. The people need to know how old you were, too. The people need to know how old you were at the time. Oh, geez, I was probably a junior in high school. So you were maybe a little too cool. A junior in high school, I think, would be like a little too cool for this. Yeah, I would say that the album that was released around this time that really connected with me was Nonpoint Statement. Really? Which I think is oh. the other side of new metal, apart from where Linkin Park would take it. Another band I saw at Ozfest 2001. Well, how old were you when you got into Hybrid Theory, Cran? 
Uh, 19, maybe 20. So you were around the same age. I was already, I was already washing dishes at Applebee's. Yeah. When you're that young though, you have a very different outlook on the world. 16 to 19 high school, college, like you don't necessarily take things in the same way. Listen, I'm telling you what, if you could transplant my junior year of high school self to the year 2000 and, and give him hybrid theory, he would have hated that shit. Oh, same here. Like I would despise like, what, is this, large, you know, what is this bullshit? You know, he'd have been listening to kid a and the strokes and stuff. So it wouldn't have clicked with me at all. I mean, I can get it. It's like, we, we praise Lincoln park a lot around here. We love Lincoln park. Well, three of us do. Well, well, hold on, hold on. So oh. like, I, I recognize the artistry of this album. And even at the time I thought it was an objectively good record, but it just did nothing for me. Okay. Like I could go into the songwriting, like the bridge on paper cut is like, like true, like Godhead songwriting. The the thing that always used to get me in trouble was I used to call this album the Phil Spector of new metal. That is a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing now considering what Phil Spector personal life. <laughs> it's totally the Phil. It's totally like a Phil Spector new album, like the Wall of Sound. Yeah, yeah. But like, right. I used to get I used to get heat from like serious music critic people when I would say that stuff, and be like, they'd be like, "Fuck out of here." And be like, no, like, listen to it. Like the way that's layered, the way that all the songs come in exactly at three minutes. It's like Phil Spector producing for the Righteous Brothers. I think you were just too early to say that. I think it was too hot of a take since everything was uh, too fresh from his body of work. I think that now that we have more distance from Phil Spencer, or excuse me, that's uh, the Xbox guy, Phil Spector's body of work, <laughs> we can examine it and look at things that came after it a bit more clearly than we could have back then. It's ridiculous to me that you would that you could put it that way and it would be interpreted as a diss, though. Because like I would completely agree with you, but not negatively at all. Um, but I do want to I do want to empathize with you and any of our listeners that feel similar is like, you know, we look back on these things, especially in the wake of Chester's death in, in 2017. And we it, the album is so perfect that we take it all for granted. Whereas at the time, I, I can really easily Im- imagine myself walking around in the year 2001 here and in the end in the car and just being like this fucking song. Oh, my God, with this fucking song because that's like it was omnipresent at the time it was everywhere you couldn't get away it from never this. went away when i got into them that it's was still the first song i heard that it's was still omnipresent. Song. yeah it's still it's still omnipresent it's still everywhere i we i just went mega viral off a video of a fucking trombone cover of the damn song it's one so, of the um most viewed youtube videos of all time too the music video it's two billion views or something crazy like that let me look at it right now yeah they really never they never went away i mean they'll never be you know it's really is like the lamest of all bands because of just how but they're so easy to take for granted that it's good to like take a step back and appreciate how marvelous their accomplishments really were it's just um i'm just saying that like for i think and i think i i speak for when i say this i really say this about all new metal is like with almost all new metal i can really get why people would not like this stuff but it's not what we're here to do i'll tell you that which is why you're fired um which is why <laughs> we will not be concluding with the thrust of that but so if we're not being negative on new metal, I guess that uh, Mudbane episode is never coming out now, is it? We'll figure out a way to talk about it. I would like, I would want to do that in a way like we're doing this one where Wolf didn't get to be his party poopage until like toward the end of it. But there's still so much about this fucking album we haven't covered yet, which is why we have another episode. Simply, about this. We're just, we're going to have to, we're just hey, going well, to have to, guys, I think we're going to have to do a bonus episode. Yeah. Um, I think it's time for us to uh, step into the sideshow. That's a good name. I like this. This is something we're coming up with right now. I think yeah, the only way idea. that we can make this palatable towards us as editors, as content creators, is to cut this episode off here and do a bonus episode delving into 
reanimation by Linkin Park, but not just reanimation as well. But I would also like to talk about, yes, the music videos. I would like to break down maybe some of the B sides. We should get more into their visual language because they had a very robust visual language. Linkin Park did. And I think this is just a matter of necessity. Now, will you have to pay to hear that episode? Yes, but that doesn't change the fact. That's also out of necessity. I'm broke. So we will have to it's, cut this. Los Angeles here. is expensive and he doesn't want to move and neither do I. So sorry, audience. Very sorry. We're not, we can't all move into Cran's place, even though I'm sure he has yes, lots of room. And I'm, I'm sure there's like three houses on his block that are like $500 a month each. So I guess we could, we could form a new metal commune on, on Cran's block out we there. We can have our own Iowa house. <laughs> there's oh, there's no block. You just move into my yard. I have a yard. I I'll do that. Yard. <laughs> I can sleep in the back of my truck. I'll do that. that. That's exactly how I sound. I got a bar you can sleep in. I was I was walking into my place today and I noticed we have these like little patches of green breaking up the sidewalks that are used exclusively for dogs to uh, poop in. That's my yard. It's like a one sidewalk. I'm sure it's only dogs section. pooping in those patches. I'm sure that's all oh, that poops in there. Good point. D- various defecations. If you brought your face too close to it, you would contract diseases that have never been named. So yeah, that's that's but that's my yard is what I'm trying to say for some fucking reason. Any goddamn way we are going to be splitting this one up now. If you've tuned into this so far, hey, just know I love you. Z loves you. Cran loves you. Wolf enjoys your presence. (laughs) And it was really great having you on. Thanks for listening. Make sure to continue listening to New Metal at all costs. Tell your friends, tell your family. If you're out there, hey, have yourselves a great night. Go listen to some New Metal. Goodbye.